When I was a kid, uh, I asked a lot of awkward questions, as you can guess, and my parents' uh, stock response was, we'll tell you when you grow up. And I could tell by the sweat on their forehead, uh, it was really, they were saying, we hope you'll never ask that question again. How many of you heard that? You know, we'll tell you when you grow up. Mark 13 uh, is the longest discourse of teaching in the entire Gospel of Mark. You know, in Matthew, the longest course of teaching Jesus gives us is the Sermon on the Mount. In Mark, we get Mark 13. And I always thought that this was one of those chapters in the Bible that I would understand when I grow up. And I'm going to be honest with you, I still don't understand much of it. And I want to be honest in saying you probably won't understand all of it as well. And if you are a guest this morning, I want to acknowledge straight up that this is a really weird part of the Bible for you to experience on your first Sunday with us. And I hope to illuminate and explain it in such a way that's helpful to you. Uh, but if you're left with questions, please know that I'm happy to make myself available to answer any questions after the service. Mark 13 is a lot like an old piece of Tupperware. Uh, the moment you get the lid down on one side, the corner pops up on the other, and you push that corner down, and the lid pops up here. You think you've sorted out these verses, and then all of a sudden, this, this doesn't work. And so you sort that out, and then that doesn't work. That being said, I, I can't explain every nook and cranny of this text this morning. Time doesn't permit it, nor does my ability. But there's an important lesson to learn in difficult passages like this where we fail to understand all that it's saying. We should never overlook what we do understand. After all, there's plenty of things on this side of eternity that we're just never going to understand. But incomplete knowledge should never eclipse the need for faithfulness in the present. And that's precisely what Jesus is trying to get at with his disciples. They're asking for signs. They're asking about the future. But Jesus gives two commands that all of us can understand. And this, stay on guard, be awake. Stay awake. Be on guard, be awake. Jesus, he's not saying, hey, get amped up on some caffeine, get a shot of adrenaline to get your heart going, stay awake, just press on through this life. I mean, if that was the command, our caffeine levels would, you know, our faithfulness would be through the roof. But that is not what Jesus is commanding. He's saying, stay awake. And this is the big idea I want to explain this morning and explore this morning is what does it mean to stay awake? In a world that lulls us to sleep, how can we stay awake? And the good news is that we can stay awake because Jesus stays awake for us, especially when it matters most. So open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, everything will be on the screen. But if you do have one, keep it in front of you because I'm going to be jumping around more than usual in this passage as it's a lot of text to get through in one sermon. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. And as Jesus came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished. Uh, for the past two chapters in the Gospel of Mark, We've been exploring temple issues. Uh, the temple was central to spirituality and ancient Judaism. And when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he clears out the temple, flips over tables, and shuts it down from functioning 
for a day. And then we see him in, engaged in intense conflict with leaders who say, you haven't been serving the temple well. You've actually been abusing it for your own selfish gain. Unsurprisingly at this point, after witnessing Jesus publicly speak against the temple, the disciples are slow on the uptake. Uh, the temple, it's central to their spiritual walk with God. It's no small thing for people from rural parts of, of the region, especially from Galilee and the like, to come to Jerusalem and be blown away by the sight of the temple. The temple was the center of their worship. It was a beautiful building. No wonder they're awestruck. No wonder they ooh and ah. You better believe if Peter or James or John had an iPhone, they would be taking selfies with the temple in the background. This was a big deal, and yet we know thoroughly through Mark's gospel so far that Jesus is not impressed with the temple, and he's especially unimpressed with the leadership of the temple. It's a failing system. It's just stones. It doesn't contain the presence of God because Jesus himself is the presence of God, and the leadership are rejecting him. And so Jesus says, it's going to be torn down. Then he sits opposite the temple, which we should see as a prophetic action. He is opposed to the temple. So Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Requesting signs in Mark's gospel and throughout the gospels is rarely a good thing. In chapter 8 of Mark, uh, the Pharisees demand a sign to test Jesus. And Jesus condemns the request and says it's a crooked thing that you're doing. So in asking for a sign, the disciples, they're already on a slippery slope. But take note of something in the request. They say, these things. Tell us when these things will happen. And they say that twice. And what they mean is, tell us when the temple is going to be overthrown. Tell us when these stones are going to fall. Tell us about these things. And so in this passage, anytime we see these things, Jesus is speaking about the present reality for his disciples and the immediate future for them. But we also have to take note that throughout this chapter, we're going to hear Jesus talk about those days. And anytime he speaks about those days, he's talking about the future, which is imminent, but it is about his return. And if we don't see the nuance here, we'll get very confused in the passage. Jesus speaks about these things for present realities the disciples are facing and that will happen in their future. And then he talks about those days, which are future realities we're all awaiting as the church. You guys with me? Stay awake. These things, those days. Got it? All right. So in speaking to the disciples, he says in response to the request for a sign, look at verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. It's actually a command. Do not be led astray. Why is this his first response? Well, signs point us in a direction. They tell us where to go. If you see a stop sign, it's generally in your best interest to stop. You could play it, you know, live on the edge, but you should probably stop if you see the sign. But in seeking signs, what Jesus knows is that we're often going to get conflicting messages, and they're going to lead us astray and cause confusion. And so Jesus spells this out in verses 5 through 13, this, this big block of text, which I'm not going to read in its entirety, but I'll summarize. There's going to be false teachers who come in the name of Christ, but they lead people astray. Nations and kingdoms are going to be at war. 
The world is going to shake with earthquakes. Humanity is going to be distraught with famine. Those who follow Jesus will face persecution and families will be divided. And this will happen in the lifetime of his disciples who are listening to them. And it continues to happen in every generation of Christ followers since. But Jesus essentially says, do not be alarmed. This is just how the world works. This is just what it means to exist in this world as you pursue me. But don't be alarmed because my spirit will be with you. But how then does the dysfunction of the world risk leading us astray? How are these two thoughts connected? They're connected in two ways. First, we can look out at the world and be looking for signs and we can be led astray by what I will call religious fortune telling. Religious fortune telling. But we can also be led astray by looking out at the world, trying to make sense of all that we see, and then we get led astray by false teaching. So let's start first with religious fortune telling. There are people out there uh, who can get so caught up in trying to read verses like this as a blueprint or a guide for the end of days. When I first became a Christian, I didn't go to the Bible. I went to Google, and I went to conspiracy theories, and I got sucked into this. I read this blog about aliens running Wall Street and how uh, they're distorting Jesus' message and all the like. I had no idea what it meant to be faithful in the present to Jesus. All I was trying to find was a blueprint for how things were going to end. You see, we're prone to this. Every news story uh, can be a hint that the world is ending, that Christ may be returning soon. You know, you take something like the recent election in the States and you say the end is nigh, and it might be. But, you know, people get obsessed deciphering when the end will be. And there's even, you know, a series of books that proclaims more knowledge than the Bible, something about being left behind. Harold Camping uh, he was a radio Bible teacher uh, with a big following in the States. And he failed to predict the end of the world multiple times in his lifetime. He's not the first person to do this, and he will not be the last, unfortunately. And his first prediction was September 6, 1994. And when that didn't happen, it became May 21st, 2011. And you might remember this because it actually became a huge news sensation and lots of buildup and billboards everywhere, even in Canada. And uh, it didn't happen. And so he gave it one more go, October 21st, 2011, and obviously we're still here. And so the sad reality is that his ministry and individuals who support his ministry spent millions and millions of dollars advertising the end. And people got so caught up in it that you can find testimonies of people maxing out their credit cards and living in ways contrary to the ways Jesus called us because they said, well, it's going to end anyways. Camping campaign did very little to help people follow Jesus in the tensions of living here and now. He only prepared people for the end, and when the end didn't come, everyone that followed him were left flabbergasted. Now, to his credit, uh, he did later acknowledge that his predictions were sinful, that he was wrong, and that the Bible teaches that no one knows when the end will happen. But the damage was already done. And that's Jesus' concern for his disciples. Will they get so caught up trying to figure out signs, trying to figure out when this will happen, that they forget how important it is to be faithful in the present? Will we? You know, we might not get caught up in an end times movement, but do we get caught up in trying to figure out how does suffering and brokenness resolve with a God who claims to be good? Or do we get so caught up looking at events around the world and wondering how God could be present that we forget to even figure out what it means to be faithful in the present, in the midst of it all? 
Second, the second risk of being led astray is false teaching. Jesus says uh, here in verse 6, Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In other words, there will be counterfeit Christs. There will be functional saviors who take his place in our lives, the place that only he should have. Now, this will sometimes be literal. Uh, There were other messiahs who who made claims after Christ's life, but there's even a, a man in Miami right now who claims to be the second coming of Christ. But the more common risk in facing how the world works, nation against nation, war and the like, is buying into false teaching from people we respect, vision of human flourishing that culture pitches us. You might remember in 2013, tragedy and terrorism struck the Boston Marathon. It was awful. And when these things take place, we often turn to one another to make sense of it all, to find hope and a way forward. And when this tragedy took place, I remember a post that went viral from the actor and comedian uh, Patton Oswalt. And uh, people were sharing it and sharing it, and I wrote it down because I thought it was very interesting that this was the response that emerged in the face of how the world works. Here's what he said. This is a giant planet, and we're lucky to live on it, but there are prices and penalties incurred for the daily miracle of existence. One of them is every once in a while, the wiring of a tiny sliver of the species gets snarled, and they're pointed toward darkness. But the vast majority stands against that darkness and, like white blood cells attacking a virus, they dilute and weaken and eventually wash away the evildoer and, more importantly, the damage they wreak. This is beyond religion or creed or nation. We would not be here if humanity were inherently evil. We'd have eaten ourselves alive long ago. So when you spot violence or bigotry or intolerance or fear or just garden variety misogyny, hatred or ignorance, just look it in the eye and think, The good outnumber you, and we always will. Now, there's some truth in here. I don't don't want to discredit the glimmers of truth in what he's saying. But there are also many things that are not true in what he's saying. And yet, a response like this gets featured in the news. It gets shared millions of times. On Facebook, people latch onto it. Why? Because if human thriving is as simple as just being relatively good people that outnumber the bad, then it actually doesn't require anything of us at all. You can go on existing without doing anything. It hardly confronts the darkness that not so dormantly lies within us, and it provides no consolation to those who are suffering in the present. You know, but the problem is that this attitude, this false teaching is as prevalent among the church as it is in the world. And it's fundamentally anti-biblical. Good does not overcome evil simply by a collective of people being good. It's not how it works. When tragedy strikes, our systems of justice, even when they operate at their best, cannot undo what's been done. No matter if full justice is brought to what happened in Boston, and and in many respects, the process is complete. It will not bring back lost limbs, and it will not bring back the dead. It can never be undone. Only if there's a God, only if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, can we hope that one day there will be true justice, that limbs will be restored, lives raised from the dead, Only by the power of Jesus can evil be undone, not just the darkness we see out there, but how it also intersects in every single heart in this room. 
You see, only Jesus can deal with these issues and only Jesus can overcome evil with good. And when we partner in that with him, yes, we become a part of the solution too. You see, there's glimmers of truth in false teaching. It wouldn't be so appealing if it didn't ring true. That's why we like what people like Oswald Patton have to say because there's partial truth. It's just easier. It's more pleasant to the ears. We don't have to do any thorough self-examination of how alike we are to terrorists. But our culture, our church even, we can settle for this false teaching that undermine truth. And so in verses 5 through 13, Jesus is warning his disciples that you can be led astray in two ways, either by religious fortune-telling or by false teaching. Both are risks for us today. Jesus says if you look to signs, you're going to either look to signs that say apocalypse now and they're going to truncate your faithfulness, or you're going to look to signs that say humanitarian can sa- humanitarianism can save us. And guess what? It's going to truncate both your faithfulness and your hopefulness. But it's what comes next in Mark chapter 13 that's even more confusing. This first part we get. We don't like it per se, but we get it. But the next part is confusing because these things, the present for the disciples and the immediate future for them, begins to overlap with those days. In verses 14 through 27, Jesus begins to focus predominantly on those days. But there's two futures present in this part. There's the historical future for the original hearers of Mark's gospel, which is now the past for us. And there's the future for us all, which is the anticipated return of Christ. So let's start in the easiest verse in this whole section, verse 14. Mark writes, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let's say it together, because it's just fun to say. The abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. What the what? And then Mark inserts, let the reader understand. So I assume you guys have got this down and that I can just move on here, right? Now, if you type abomination of desolation into Google image search, you're going to get helpful images like this. Uh, And I'm not sure if it means that animals are going to start growing horns or dragons are going to return or whatever that golden thing in the middle is, but uh, it's not helpful. And the sad thing is pictures like this are attached to articles and articles aren't helpful. And uh, Mark, he inserts commentary here, right? Mark actually, he doesn't do this often, but he puts in parentheses, let the reader understand which implies that the early people that this gospel was being read to understood the phrase abomination of desolation. We don't get it immediately, but they got it. In the same way, if I say the war on terror, you immediately know what I mean. But thousands of years from now, will they? You know, they might think we were trying to eradicate fear altogether, but that's not what we meant. The abomination of desolation, I'll take a stab at it. It's a stab. It's most likely a triple reference. So first, it's a throwback to the book of Daniel, which was filled with uh, prophetic images. And one of these images is the abomination of desolation. And many Jews at that time believed this image had been fulfilled uh, in 167 BC. And so the second component to this is from the Maccabean period of Jewish history, when the Greek ruler, uh, ruler 
Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, set up an altar within the Jewish temple and sacrificed pigs on it to to Zeus. He desolated the most holy place for Jews at the time. This was the abomination of desolation. And this imagery, this phrase would evoke um, terror in Jews' bones. You're talking about their most holy place, the most holy place on earth being desolated. The events on October 22nd of last year might be a close parallel for us. The attack on Parliament Hill's center block. For us, this is an abomination of desolation of sorts. A defilement of our highest place of order and justice. The symbol of our freedom and values. It was a horrifying event. It didn't belong there, not there. What Epiphanes did was horrifying, but Jesus is also issuing another warning. He's saying there's another abomination of desolation to come, and this would have shook his disciples to the bones. And indeed, this desolation did come. Uh, Most scholars believe Mark wrote somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D. And in 70 A.D., after Mark wrote his gospel, Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple was overthrown and the Roman armies which brought desolation destroyed everything and their commander went into the temple, but not just into the temple. He went into the Holy of Holies, the most intimate space where God was thought to dwell and he intentionally defiled it, an abomination of desolation. This was still in the future for Mark's readers, but it's in the past for us now. But, In this passage, there's a future that remains for us too, and we'll read it, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says this. In those days, after that tribulation, so that tribulation is in reference to the abomination of desolation, the overthrowing of the temple. So in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus begins speaking about those days as a future that still exists for all of us. A future we still all anticipate. His return. And while we can't know exactly what will unfold to get us there, what will happen, we know something. We don't have to discern signs to tell us when the end will happen. Did any of you grow up in the prairies? Any any prairie dogs here? Is that what you call yourselves, prairie dogs? No, sorry. Uh, But you know, okay, you grew up in the prairies, and your parents tell you that this thing called the ocean exists. And you're going on a road trip for the first time to go see the ocean. And now, you would be very excited because it's hard to conceive of its magnitude. You know, this is what you see on your drive. And then you, you pass a city called Calgary and then, uh, you know, go over the Rockies. I'm kidding. I love Calgary. But, you know, you might nag your parents the whole way. Like, are there signs? How do we know when we're going to see the ocean? Is there a sign? I don't want to miss the ocean. And your parents say, don't worry about it. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. Why would you be worried? Because you can't actually grasp the magnitude of the ocean. If you drive west, you're going to see it. You can't miss it. While we might not understand exactly how Christ will return or when, there's one thing we can know for certain. We will not miss it. It will be obvious. We will know it's happening. The entire universe will be rent. 
every living person will see it. You won't miss out on it because he's returning for us, both the living and the dead. Now, after talking about those days, his return, which is in the future, Jesus returns to these things in verses 28 through 31. So we're, we're back into the present realities for the disciples. And he says to them, you can know that the temple is going to be overthrown in your lifetime. And he assures them in verse 30, he says, these things will happen in your generation. Note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say those days will happen in your generation. So he's not falsely predicting that he'd return and then didn't. He's saying you can expect that in your generation, in these days, the temple will be overthrown. And guess what? It was. If we pay close attention to the text, that much is clear. But then Jesus says something so phenomenal. Look what he says in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will not pass away. You see, there's a sense of instability that a text like this causes. You hear that the center of your worship is going to crumble. You hear that the universe will one day end, and you start thinking, what can I hold on to? If heaven is going to be shook and earth is going to crumble, what can I hold on to? And Jesus says, my words. My words will not pass away. And this is a huge relief because even if we can't make sense of everything we see around us, we can trust that Jesus does. And we can trust that what he promises will happen if his word truly does not pass away. And then Jesus, he segues back into those days. In verse 32, he says, but concerning that day and that hour. Right? So he said, look, the temple, it will fall in your lifetime. But in those days, in my return, that day or that hour, no one knows. No one knows when it will happen. Not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, we can get caught up in how could Jesus not know this if he's the Son of God. It's the wrong question. The point is simple. We don't know when it will happen. And so the moment someone starts predicting his return with any sense of accuracy is the moment you can say with complete confidence, I'm sorry, good sir, you're wrong. And it wouldn't be a woman because a woman is smarter than that. You know, but the moment that that happens, we're not in accord with Jesus' own words. But here's what he wants us to know. Look, you might not know when it happens. You might church 2,000 years later be wondering when is he going to return? Did he get it wrong? Here's what you can know for certain. Verses 35 through 37. Therefore stay awake. Stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say I say to all which includes us stay awake. Awake. Be on guard. Stay awake. These are the two warnings that we can understand without any explanation in this passage. We might not get parts of this passage, but we get this. But of course, as disciples, we're not all that prone to staying awake. Think about Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. They couldn't stay awake to pray with Jesus. And Jesus exacerbated says to them, could you not even stay awake one hour to pray? One hour. You see, we're prone to be sleepy. 
And the point, though, isn't that we're just literally sleepy. The point is that we can lose sense of the real. We can lose sense of what's really true. We can lose sense of who Jesus is and what it means for living here and now. And when this happens, we slow drift into complacency by focusing too much on only what we can see. Because it can start to feel like what we see is the only thing that is real. See, here's the truth. We know people who've been led astray. Whether that's through uh, our own denominational split or friends who have left the Christian faith altogether. We know wars. Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Syria. We know national conflicts. Britain and the EU. The turmoil in America. Russia and Ukraine. Elbowgate. We know earthquakes. Ecuador. Italy, New Zealand, Nepal. We know of famines, West Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia. You see, if we look to the world around us, it can be cause for alarm. And if we fall asleep, if we don't keep our hearts and our eyes fixed on Jesus, it can seem like this world alone is what's real, and it doesn't feel safe, and it doesn't feel stable. And if we don't stay awake, what's the risk? Jesus is clear, you'll be led astray. And it can start by focusing first too much on life after death. That you stop caring about how you live in the here and now. It's the the world is just going to burn anyways mentality. And you start living as if faithfulness in the present doesn't matter because you have your ticket for eternity punched. But when Jesus says stay awake, he has faithfulness in the present in mind. Because how you live now and between his return, it matters to God. And if you don't think it does, you can guarantee, you can take it to the bank that you will be led astray, that you will fall into practices and lifestyles that are contrary to representing who Christ really is. Alternatively, if you lose hope in the eternal, if if you lose hope in eternal life, if you lose, or if you never had that hope to begin with, You can only focus on the here and now. But that doesn't make you neutral. Christ says there will be imitators. There will be counter-Christs. There will be someone that you place in that space that only he deserves. And so you might turn to a political leader or a pundit or a guru or a thought leader or TED Talks. And you're going to look to people who inspire change, who inspire hope, who inspire a good life. You're looking for signs that show glimmers of good. You're looking for hope in the midst of a bleak world. And you might even hold on to some of the teachings of Jesus, but not all of them, because the claim that he's the Lord of the universe, it's too otherworldly. It's too big. But when Jesus says, stay awake, he means that he wants our hearts fixed on the hope of his return. That the world that we see is not all that there is. So stay awake. Pay attention with me. This is what Jesus means when he says stay awake. First, that we faithfully follow him here and now. Second, with our hearts anchored in the hope of his return, that he will return and make all things new and make all things right. Part of staying awake means that we stay on guard from false teachings and attitudes that can distract us and lead us astray from being faithful and hopeful in the present. Because here's the the issue. We live between the times. 
You see, we know that Christ has come. We know that he will return. And yet we still live in the midst of a broken world, distraught with famines and wars and the like. And we think, how do we do this? Do I just focus on what he, when he came? Do I just focus on the hope of his return? And this is the issue. He says, stay awake. You live in a great tension. And you have to embrace that tension. The temptation is to fall asleep and just focus on the here and now and forget the great tension that you live in. Because we're called to be signs, a picture of what the world to come will be like. We're called to be a glimpse, a foretaste of how good this world will be through our faithfulness and hopefulness. And so it's understandable that we experience attention because there is one. And it's understandable if we focus too much on the world around us and what we see that it can destabilize us and cause us alarm. But Jesus says, Try to see it differently. He says, eventually these things, the things that cause us alarm, the things that destabilize, they're the beginning of birth pains. They're the beginning of birth pains. What he means is that all of the things we see in the world, the suffering, the atrocities, as deeply painful and real as they are, are just labor pains that will give birth to something far more profound and beautiful, the glory of Christ at his return. Where the scriptures promise, they promise that this glory will eclipse the suffering that we face in this world. I don't know how that works, but it's the promise. How do we know this is true? What does Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Only God himself could make this claim. And there's comfort here. There's comfort here. The Lord of the universe neither sleeps nor slumbers, but stays awake for us. Think about Gethsemane again. The followers of the Lord, we're prone to fall asleep, but what does Jesus do? He stays awake in prayer, toiling even to the point of bleeding. And he says, Lord, your will. I will stay awake to accomplish this great salvation for the world. I'll stay awake for the people who can't stay awake to bring about something that they can't accomplish. I'll stay awake and I'll do it. But it's because Jesus stays awake for us that we don't have to lose hope because even if you're sleepy, even if you're half awake right now or asleep all together, he stays awake for his church. He guards his church and this passage tells us he gives us his Holy Spirit. He will rouse you from sleep. He stays awake for you. We can stay awake because Jesus stayed awake for us when it mattered most. There's one more component that we have to look at about staying awake. Jesus says in verse 10, In the meantime, in the midst of all of these things, proclaim the gospel to all nations. If you want to litmus test of how awake you are. Look at your life and say, how am I proclaiming the gospel? How am I proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ through how I live? What I do with my finances? What I, how I relate to coworkers? How I care for the marginalized? Do I make the gospel known? Do I proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who have bought into a different worldview? This is a litmus test for how awake we are. Do we proclaim the good news of the gospel as a part of our responsibility of staying awake? 
to let the world know that God is not dead, God is not asleep, God is not uninterested in the world, that he's awake and he's with us in this turmoil and he has given us a great hope and promise. Jesus stayed awake when it mattered most. That's what I want you to take home. And if you're asleep, all you have to do is ask him to sustain you and he will. He'll wake you up. So stay awake, church.